0: Last but not least, I get the pleasure of introducing John West, who is going to be our guest speaker today. So John and Christine West are in Grand Rapids, been friends with them or have known them through Blue Ocean Circles for many years as they were part of the Blue Ocean conversation when we were all still back in the Vineyard Movement and just really enjoyed them when we connected at one of the the conferences um, at our church and thought, man, the questions that they're asking are really, really good. And John, having a really, I'd say, a particularly keen academic or theological mind, he was the only person to write a theological response to the critique on Ken's third way. So Ken presented his third way to the larger denomination, and um, they gave a 90-page terrible thing back. And John uh, wrote a really, really great academic paper critiquing theirs, and he was the only person, the only pastor in the entire Vineyard movement that did that, and he took a lot of flack for it. So I've always admired his courage and felt like he was a real friend to us in that. And in fact, I believe some of what he's preaching on today is probably informed by some of that work that he had done. So John and Christine, um, John was pastoring the Vineyard Church in Grand Rapids, and Their views had been evolving on LGBTQ inclusion. And I think it was the weekend after the Supreme Court decision, wasn't it? Yeah, when they said that gay marriage was legal across the country. John was preaching on that passage of Jesus of let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he was preaching on it and he had a Holy Spirit moment up there as he was preaching. And he felt like the Holy Spirit said, are you going to let your yes be yes and your no be no on this issue? And so he just had a vulnerable moment and shared with his congregation where he was at. And I think Christine was even ahead of him and waiting for him there. And so that that precipitated a little bit of a crisis in his congregation. Um, So they now have a new congregation that is like a blue ocean church that we were praying for and supporting some during Lent last year. So they are up and going and in that stage of just solidifying their core group. They've been meeting for 20 weeks and we are really excited to welcome them here today, come on up, John. All right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Emily. That was a lovely introduction. I I feel honored to be me. <laughs> uh, um, we, uh, we we have been meeting for about twenty weeks, and uh, it's been really fun. We so admired this church. You're. You're like an older sibling to us. You're, you're like the kind of church we hope to be when we grow up. Well, we meet in a really cool non-profit theater space right now. We have about 25 people a week. Uh, they charge us $40 a week, so we have really low pressure as far as expenses go. We're just doing it because we think it's fun. We have one mission, that's to welcome everybody to the table of Jesus because we believe Jesus welcomed all people to his table. So that's, that's the mission, and we're just looking to live that out every week and we we've been saying continually like we're just in we're in this for fun we're all amateurs so we're doing it for the love of it because it's fun so that's who we are and so honored to be here Um, love the scripture for today Uh, love your enemies it's kind of you know it feels a little quaint to remember that Jesus had to say that at one time it's not a day we live in a world where that's just a given you love everybody you love your right Sometimes Jesus is just surprisingly timely, yeah. is it, right? So, uh, I noticed, as many of you did probably, that um, there's some animosity in the world right now, that there's some division. I've, I've lost some friends. Uh, some of you may have lost some friends. There's, I've, I've self-quarantined uh, from the Facebook. I got off it. I couldn't take it anymore. I just, I've left. My life's better. This is my testimony. <laughs> I left Facebook and my life is better. God bless you if you're still on there, but uh, I just noticed that this is a tough time right now to, uh, to love our enemies. It's, it's tough. It's, it's tough when we feel like we're not on the receiving end of love, to love. And I think Jesus is just supremely wise and awesome and has some amazing things to teach us. And so we're going to start with a story of Jesus at table, eating with all sorts of people, and, and this is the center of who we're trying to be in Grand Rapids, and I have a feeling it's the center of who you're trying to be in Ann Arbor. This is in Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus has been gathering some followers to him, and there's a, there's a debate going in Israel. There's questions going around in Israel, like how can we make Israel great again? How can we make Israel awesome? How can we, how can we make it fabulous? What does, it mean to be, what does it mean to be truly Israel? And so Jesus has been gathering people together. And he's walking along, and in the day when Jesus was ministering, there were these people called tax collectors who worked on the behest of the occupying force that was Rome. And they would collect taxes from the Israelites. And they were generally hated. They were viewed as an enemy by the Israel, Israeli people of the day. So Jesus is walking along. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, and the Pharisees were the kind of the purity party of the day, the purity tribe... When they saw this, they said to Jesus' followers, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. So I think this is brilliant. I want to unpack a little bit why I think this is just absolutely brilliant. Now, the first thing that needs to be said is probably most of us today didn't get up thinking, should I sacrifice a chicken? <laughs> should I show mercy or should I sacrifice a chicken? Is it a good day to sacrifice a chicken? Nah, I'll, I'll go with mercy. So, you know, how do we, uh, how do we apply this uh, today? What, is, what does mercy have to do with sacrifice? Because we're not, we're not sacrificing things today, at least as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, sorry if I'm stepping on toes. If you, did sacri- <laughs> if you did sacrifice a chicken today, sorry. But, you know, that's probably not the thing that's really on our, our minds. So I want to begin unpacking this by going into some research that I've just personally found absolutely fascinating. And it's this research around what's called discuss psychology. And perhaps some of you have maybe heard of a fairly famous Dixie Cup experiment. If you haven't, I'll just kind of set it up. We won't do the actual experiment, but I would love to do it, but it's fun. We'll do just a part of it. So become aware that you have saliva in your mouth, that you're... Your saliva glands are working, you have saliva in your mouth. And then swallow it. How do you taste? Gotcha. Neutral. Is that is that like really odd or is it gross to swallow your saliva? Maybe if I talk about it enough I'll give it to you a little squeamish. It's not too bad. But now so now again become aware of saliva in your mouth. Now we won't actually do this, but imagine you have the saliva in your mouth and you and you spit it in a cup. Now think about just slugging it back down. So, so what has changed, like it's the same substance, right? Same substance, but we actually have a different word for it. It went from being saliva to being spit. And nobody ever thinks, gee, I'll have a cup of spit, right? <laughs> so something's changed, and the, the great insight of this research is that um, disgust, the first thing to know about disgust is that it has to do with being a boundary psychology. It has to do with separating what's me from what's not me. So when the saliva is in my mouth, it's a part of me, and I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of swallowing myself. (laughs) Once I've spit it out, it's not me, and there's a really clear boundary between me and not me, and now I'm disgusted (laughs) by what is not me. So that's the first place to start, is that Disgust has to do with boundaries and what's me, what's not me. Now when we, by mistake, eat something disgusting or we find like the proverbial fly in our soup, what is our first reaction? We spit it out. We spit it out or if we didn't spit it out and we realize we swallowed it, perhaps we'll even vomit it. So the second thing to note about disgust psychology is that it's an expulsive psychology. It has to do with ridding ourselves of something. We spit it out. We vomit it out. It's exclusionary. It's getting rid of something that's unpure from us who are pure, right? Now those are the first two things to note. But then with that comes this type of thinking that psychologists, and not disparagingly, call magical thinking. Because it's intuitive, and we just automatically think this way without having been taught to think this way. It's intuitive, and it makes sense, and it's evolutionarily speaking adaptive. It's helped keep our species alive, and it has to do with a few things than how we just intuitively reason about disgust. So imagine this cup is just a really pure cup of really good red wine, or if that doesn't do it for you, a really good Starbucks coffee, and I'm getting ready to offer you this really good red wine or this really good coffee, and I say, oh, before I do, I've just got this little eyedropper here with some of my urine, and I
0: <laughs>
1: squeeze just a little drop in it. I say, there you go. <laughs> How do you feel about it? No thanks, you don't, you don't want to. So one of, the, one of the, th- the ways of thinking about disgust goes is that disgust, contamination, is transferred via contact. Something that is disgusting touches something that's not disgusting and the thing that was not disgusting or clean becomes immediately disgusting. The second thing to note is there's a bit of dose insensitivity. And it, I mean, my urine's sterile, everybody's urine's sterile, but it's just a little drop and it's it's this really nice big glass of wine. Why don't you want it? So. So the second piece of magical thinking has to do with even just a little bit. This is called dose insensitivity or negative dominance. Even just a little bit will make it unclean, will make it unfit, will make it disgusting. So there's contact, there's dose insensitivity, and then there's this thing called permanence. It's like, okay, I get it, I'll try not to be offended, you didn't want to drop my urine in your wine. Oh, who knew? I'm going to run it through a purifier and I run it through a purifier how do you feel about it then? There's something that just happens even though logically we could probably reason through the the red wine has been run through a purifier it's really good now there's something about our thinking that attaches permanence to impurity. So now the question is why think about this? And to help you with this, we want, I want to do a little fun experiment that I call Think About Your Sin. So for just a moment, moment think about, um, and we don't have to go real dark. Think about something that you were a little embarrassed about or think about a time you didn't behave really well. Get that in your mind for about 10 seconds. Everybody got it? Some of you, I know nothing will come to mind because your lives have been so, so good. All right, once you' got that in your mind, we're going to do it just a little. This has been a repeated psychological experiment, so we, I hope this will work. Got that in your mind? Now look up here and try don't shout it out loud. Can everybody see that? Try to fill it, finish out this word. All right. So we got S, O. Raise your hand if you thought A. Yeah, all right, most of you. Anybody here think you? Alright. You guys are the pure ones. <laughs> Generally speaking, this experiment's been repeated over and over again. We ask people ask people to think about a moral failing, and you ask them to do this fill in the word fill in the letter type experiment. Overwhelmingly, people will go with soap. So the reason to think about discuss psychology is because. What happens at a physical level, kind of around food disgust or what psychologists would call core disgust, is easily transferred to social bodies. There is a real transference where social bodies can be consumed with purity. And frankly, if you've ever read the Bible, you can think in parts the Bible's fairly consumed with purity. I grew up in a community, and perhaps some of you did, where we really valued reading the Bible, and I still really value reading the Bible. And so one of the things we would do is we would set these goals to read the Bible through in a year. And I had dreams of reading the Bible through in the year, and my dreams would always crash on the rocks of Leviticus. (laughs) Just, just die. Just, you know, crash and die on Leviticus. Anybody ever tried to read the Bible through? Straight through? Anybody ever tried to read Leviticus? What's the deal with not eating the, the black kite? I don't even know what a black kite is. I take it it's a bird, but I've never been tempted to eat it. Why do I even care about not eating it? And, and why is there so much talk about mold and mildew and how to get my house clean if it's been mildewy? I don't know. It's, anybody read, read this? Yeah. So, I mean, to be frank, parts of the Bible is are a little bit obsessed with this purity Thinking this purity language, how can we be clean? How can we keep from being unclean? And um, if you haven't read it before, just so you know, I'm not making it up. Just open to a random passage in Leviticus this afternoon and take a read. It's there. It's it's really there. And so now, I think it's important to be frank and say that's that's part of the history of the people of faith is wrestling with this. Thing of clean and unclean. So these things we think about in, in um, purity psychology transfer to social psychology, to social bodies. And intuitively, at least I as a kid did this, and some things I wrestle with sometimes is I wonder, did I just grow up in an unusual place or did everybody have the experiences I did? But did anybody else in this room ever do cooties? Oh, okay. Thank goodness. I'm always, re- always relieved to hear that there was some semblance of normalcy in my childhood. But we just intuitively did these things where there was this group that was a contaminating group. In our case, being a boy, the contaminating group was the girls and vice versa. Right. Vice versa. Did you all do cootie spray? It was invisible spray. Like if a girl had sat on this seat, I could sh- I can make that noise. You got cootie shots, and you could get decaminated. And so as kids, there seems to be this intuitive thing where we transport this idea of we're clean, they're unclean, we're going to keep separate from them in case we get contaminated. There's the cootie spray, which was, you know, similar to some of the stuff. This sounds funny. Like cootie spray similar to some of the stuff in the Bible. But there's like ritual cleansing, right? Way, ways that you get clean. And now the hope would be that you grow out of this in childhood, but um, sometimes I I feel like I'm making stuff up when I say stuff like this, but this is true. Grown-ups in this country had purity cootie thinking um, into the past century. Like they were literally separate drinking fountains based on contamination logic, which is just intuitive and easy. It's um, Evolutionary speaking, it's like a sweet tooth. It's our moral minds go for it like our bodies go for sugar. We latch onto this thinking and we can't let go of it. So that's why thinking about it is important. And that's why what Jesus is saying, that he desires mercy not sacrifice, is just brilliant. Because what he is doing is he's giving us a lens to read the whole of the Bible and a way forward in life. So what Jesus is saying is that there is this whole sacrificial system throughout the Bible that has to do with getting ourselves clean and then becoming the clean insider versus the unclean outsider. And it's the priestly system. Um, You may be aware that at the temple in Jerusalem there was these orders of holiness. There was the holy of holies and then there was concentric circles of holiness ending with the Gentiles who are really far out there who are way away from being holy and at the center only one priest could go once a year the very cleanest the very best of the best the one who was the one that God really loved that's a whole tradition and there's a whole system involving the Pharisees that is set up around doubling down on this system of around purifying Israel. That's why they're completely offended that Jesus is eating with the wrong people. Because remember, contamination logic says that if Jesus is here and he's rubbing shoulders, that was my hand rubbing Christine, my wife's shoulder. I thought it'd be odd to just randomly touch somebody else, so I, <laughs> I went with my wife. So Jesus is having a meal and touching The wrong people. And the way contamination logic works is that Jesus is being contaminated. The Pharisees think this dude is supposed to be a prophet. He's being contaminated. He's eating with the wrong people. He's contaminated. Now he's impure. But for Jesus, the logic is working in the exact opposite direction. If we read through the Gospels and we think about contamination logic and purity logic, Jesus in one of the Gospels, can I touch you just gently? Jesus, in one of the gospels, the man says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says, Jesus reached down and touched him. So that man, at that point, is unclean. By contamination logic, Jesus is being contaminated. But instead, cleanness, purity, whatever we would want to think, is flowing from Jesus to this person. Thank you for letting me touch your shoulder. <laughs> is, is flowing so that Jesus is embracing mercy and hospitality. And welcome. And here's what I think is going on at the deepest level. There is a competing visions of how to be Israel, and I might call them the Joshua vision or the Jesus vision. Um, and Jesus is another way of spelling, I guess, the Hebrew name Joshua. And we're reading the New Testament in Greek, so Jesus' name in some way was Joshua, but for comparison's sake, we'll say Joshua and Jesus. Are you all familiar with the story of Joshua? Joshua's fit the battle of Jericho. Sometimes college bands play it on Saturdays. Uh, But the story of Joshua, here's what I want to say about the story of Joshua. I hope when we read it, the story of Joshua makes us really uncomfortable. Because the story of Joshua's, and listen to this language, the story of Joshua is a story of ethnic what? Cleansing, right? Our language tries to tell us things if we'll listen. Joshua is the story of ethnic cleansing. It's the story of eliminating a group of people from a land. And here's the setup to it. This is the story in Deuteronomy. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel, giving Joshua the charge. When the Lord, your God, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. And listen really carefully show no mercy to them. So there's the instructions. So the question we sh- I feel like we should be asking if we're human and we're reading the Bible is, ooh, that's not a question, that's an experience. <laughs> that's a feeling. I'd hope we'd have that feeling, like, ugh. Right? So then that becomes a real tension. And so here's something that I just want to, as much as I can in a gentle way, drive home. Jesus is clearly, really clearly saying to my mind, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not mercy and sacrifice. Not hospitality and embrace. Oh, and some purity. He's saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because here's the thing about purity logic, purity thinking. It is built into us in such a way that it does become an either or. There are faults there are false dichotomies this is not a false dichotomy to try to import both and thinking where well of course we need to welcome people but oh yeah we need a whole bunch of holiness and purity too is going to lead us as the people of jesus down the wrong trail it will inevitably lead us to exclusion it will inevitably lead us to what's called infrahumanization to where there are people on the outside who are not clean and we're going to maintain our clean boundaries at the expense of the people on the outside. Tracking, does any of that make sense? All right, good. So here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus has read these stories. Jesus knows the story of Joshua, it's his namesake. Joshua means God saves. And so the question is, is God gonna save through Jesus like God saved through Joshua with an ethnic cleansing? Is that the agenda? And Jesus, I think, brilliantly and clearly gives a definitive no to that answer. So there's a story in Matthew 14 and Matthew 15. There's two stories. One's called the feeding of the 5,000. And one's called the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000, as you might imagine, has to do with feeding 5,000. And they only counted men. Men at that time feeding of the 4,000 you might imagine has to do with feeding 4,000. And a little bit if you're reading it just through the first time you're like well this is a little redundant. We've, we've seen this before. But here's the thing. The feeding of the 5,000 is done in Jewish territory. It's the feeding of Jewish people. And they collect 12 basketfuls of bread which has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. And I believe there's some pretty rich symbolism there about God gathering Israel back together, restoring Israel, the 12 tribes. The feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has moved out of Jewish territory into Gentile territory, into some of the region where Joshua, according to the book of Joshua, uh, committed ethnic cleansing, committed a genocide, cleansed the land. But there's, and it's a complex story in Joshua, but there's still descendants. These are Gentile people. So these are descendants of the, the people that Israel conquered as they came into the land. In the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus feeds them. And then they collect seven, seven basketfuls of bread afterwards, which was the number seven of the nations that, according to Deuteronomy, that the Israelites were to cleanse and to drive out and to commit genocide against. So after that, after this feeding, after this feeding in this Gentile territory... Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, as he often is, and they're having a conversation. And he says something that gets completely past them. The first thing he says is, beware of the yeast of the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're like, oh, we forgot bread. And admittedly, really, if I was there and Jesus said, look out for yeast, I don't know what I'd been thinking. Like, who knows? But the thing that Jesus seems to be driving at is, the Pharisees have a specific teaching and in the passage right before the Pharisees have been asking Jesus for a sign and Jesus says you're not getting any sign but the sign of Jonah and real briefly here is the sign of Jonah God's going to have mercy on the people you don't want him to that's the sign the people you hate God's going to be merciful to them that's the sign how do you like that sign So Jesus has said, be careful about the yeast of the Sadducees and Pharisees. The disciples go, oh, we forgot bread. And Jesus says this then, Do you not perceive and do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? That was 12 baskets. That's the restoration of Israel. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? That's again seven. Seven. How is it you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? So Jesus is saying to them, there is a way that the world can be put to rights. There is a way where the world we all want, what we might call the kingdom of God, can come to be. Mostly, intuitively, we think it's going to come through some extreme purity, vetting, holiness, where the good is separated from the bad, and only the good remains and I want to say this really clearly every culture on earth has that story everybody operates out of that narrative I'll say this strongly just so I'm sure I'm heard the people who flow planes into buildings on 9-11 they didn't have some narrative where they were wearing the sinister costume where they were the bad guys they had a narrative where they were purifying and they were committing righteous acts of violence. Every culture in the world has that story. Generally, what we do as humans is we say, but yeah, we, are, we actually are the righteous. Sure, they're telling that story, but we actually are. So, all clear to purify. Jesus is saying, get rid of that yeast! Because that yeast will spread just like yeast spreads through a loaf of bread and it'll be everywhere. Jesus says, think about this. The people that Joshua wiped out, their descendants, I fed them. I had mercy on them. I welcomed them. I showed them hospitality. Jesus is saying, really, think about this and ponder this. Learn the meaning of this. The God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not after sacrifice. Sacrifice always means eliminating somebody. Making somebody unclean. So that we, the clean, can feel good. Jesus says, learn this, I'm not after that. It's not a both and here. I'm not after that. I'm after mercy, which is hospitality, embrace, the feeding of strangers, the love of all people. And so Jesus, because he's brilliant, gave us a reminder. And he gave us a reminder that every week, and I love that you're doing it every week, we could come to a table. And we could come to a table, and we could remember that Jesus ate with all people, anytime, anywhere. And he welcomed them. And this was the center of what Jesus was doing So I want to close with this that I think is just brilliant and I pray that this will sink in and that we'll have ears to hear. This is from a writer that I just love. His name is Richard Beck. He wrote, Culturally and historically in many parts of the world and in the Middle East in particular, it was and is assumed that you are to never act violently against someone with whom you've broken bread. Just let this sink in. To break bread with someone wasn't and isn't a casual affair. To break bread signals solidarity, a deep commitment that cannot be treated lightly. We might say that eating together forms a sort of covenant relationship between the two parties. In short, eating together is a form of peacemaking. By contrast, refusing to eat with someone signals hostility. What, and what did the Pharisees want? They didn't want Jesus to eat with the wrong people. They wanted to be able to be hostile towards those people. It signals hostility with the possibility of future violence still a live option. Given this, in many parts of the world, people are prohibited from eating with enemies, because if you eat with them, you can't kill them later. In light of this, there is a strong association between the Lord's Supper and peacemaking. To break bread with others is a declaration of solidarity and nonviolence. The wall of hostility has been broken down in the shared mural of communion. The threat of future violence between the parties has been taken away. So the Lord's Supper isn't merely a ritual. It is, and I love this it is a sociological intervention. It is a sociological intervention for our just intuitive ways of thinking about purity. By coming to this table and coming with others, we are involved in sociological intervention. It is action. It is mercy enacted. And if that's the case, we should break bread with anyone and everyone in the world, just like Jesus. Amen. Amen. I understand you have a practice, uh, a, spiritual pra- it, a spiritual practice. What do you call it, spiritual practice? What do you call it? I want to get it right. I want to be pure. <laughs> <laughs> so let's engage in that practice. Uh, we'll just spend a little time being quiet. And uh, quiet doesn't mean that there's not going to be any sounds. There may be some distractions, but we're looking for kind of an, an interior quiet. And I'm just going to guide us in a little exercise Of picturing Jesus welcoming us, so part of how I think we treat others is how we treat ourselves. So there's a pretty fabulous story. It's probably apocryphal, but I love it. It's been attributed to Mark Twain. It's been attributed to Conan Doyle. But the story goes like this: There was a uh, a man who decided he was going to play a little trick on his friends. And he said, uh, he sent him 12 friends, 12 telegrams saying, All is discovered, flee at once. And he said the next day, everybody, all, all of them were gone. Because here seems to be the deep truth we all have things of which we're ashamed, we all have things that we wish were different about us. It seems to me the invitation of Jesus this morning is to begin with welcoming all of ourselves. So it seems to me what Jesus is saying, instead of all is discovered, flee at once, all is discovered, try to get pure, seems to me Jesus is saying, all is discovered, come and eat. So right now, in just the quietness of your heart, picture Jesus as you would picture him. Now maybe hear him say this words to you. Truly all is discovered, come and eat. Then however you might imagine, however you might picture the part of you of which you're ashamed, the part of you that you wish wasn't so, maybe you want to interact with Jesus and say even that part As much as you can today, I want you to hear Jesus say, yes, all of you, you're all welcome. Come to this table, come and eat. Jesus, we thank you that you welcome us. We thank you that you taught us that you desire mercy, not sacrifice. Save us from sacrifice. Save us from sacrificial impulses. Save us from purity impulses. May we become a people of rich hospitality that say to the world, all is discovered, come and eat. May we be the people of nonviolence and welcome and hospitality. We ask this in the good and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.